Well, that was a tremendous blessing to hear the praise of the Lord's name on the lips of our children is uh, one of the greatest blessings in the world. So we praise God for that. I hope that uh, all of you are doing well and Merry Christmas to everyone. Uh, as we heard earlier, today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, which means that this is the last Sunday service that we will have before Christmas. So we won't meet again collectively like this on a Sunday morning uh, before Christmas comes. And I just want to take this opportunity to invite all of you to our Christmas Eve service, uh, which will start at 5 o'clock this Friday night. So uh, 5 o'clock, if you're able to make that, uh, I think it will truly be a blessing. You know, that uh, time we understand Christmas Eve and Christmas morning, obviously it's busy. Uh, we're spending time with family, and, and it's a very special time with our families. But it is, every year, it has been such a tremendous blessing to come here for an hour-ish with God's people and to worship Him and uh, to be under His Word and just to be reminded that Christmas is even not about family, right? I mean, that's, that's the thing. I think, you know, people say, well, Christmas is not about gifts. Okay. Christmas is not about shopping, okay. Christmas is not about pies and bells and that sort of thing, but uh, I think some people maybe functionally think Christmas is about family. It's not. Christmas is about the Lord Jesus Christ, and we gather with our spiritual family to worship this Christ. And so, uh, no guilt trip if you can't make it on Christmas Eve, but I pray that uh, many of you will be able to be here uh, you can go ahead and go with me in your Bibles at this point to Romans 15, verses 7 to 13. Romans 15, 7 to 13. As I've said before, it is sometimes difficult to determine what to preach during Advent. Do we stay or do we go? That's kind of the question that I have to ask uh, around November every year, at least by November. Uh, do we stay where we're at, or do we go to another place? Uh, and uh, this year, I decided to stay in Romans. I tend there, uh, if it works, so to speak, uh, but uh, we did decide this year to stay in Romans. And it's neat to see, it's always, it's always amazing to see God's providence in this, uh, where we land today just naturally walking our way through Romans here, the Sunday before Christmas, the fourth Sunday of Advent, it's neat to see where we land. A passage that reminds us that Christ has come and that he welcomes us. A passage that brings forward the prophecy from Isaiah 11.10. The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him Will the Gentiles hope? This is a passage that ends with these words in verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The coming of Christ to save his people, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, the hope joy and peace that Christ's salvation brings. What else is Christmas about? These are the major Christmas themes. And so I suppose if we were coming up on the uh, genealogy of Esau, uh, the Sunday before Christmas, or uh, any other genealogy for that ma matter, apart from Matthew 1, uh, it might be wise to go somewhere else, but given what we have before us in this passage, it is very appropriate that we just continue what we've been looking at in Paul's letter to the Romans. So the title for today's sermon is Accepted by Christ, Accepting One Another. Accepted by Christ, Accepting One Another. And you'll see it up there on the screen. For several weeks, we've been in a section that runs from 14.1 to 15.13. And today, Paul reaches his climax. So he's been walking through, you know, and Paul does, he's obviously not thinking in chapters and verses. None of the biblical authors are. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, given his own style and his own method of communication and his own kind of 
mental house of rhetoric, Paul proceeds to communicate this truth under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And undoubtedly, however Paul did it, he had a a way that he was organizing what he presented. Uh, No one writes something or gets up in front of people and just sort of rambles on. I mean, I I suppose that that happens, but uh, generally speaking, and particularly in the case of something like a letter to the Christians at Rome, there would have been lots of thought and structure that would have gone into this letter. And we've seen that structure. We've seen how chapters 1 to 4 constitute a unit and 5 to 8 constitute a unit, which ends gloriously at the end of chapter 8. And then Paul goes from the beginning of chapter 9 to the end of chapter 11 discussing Jews and Gentiles. And then we see how he turns at the beginning of chapter 12 to really apply everything that he's said so far to God's people. Very practical instructions given in chapter 12. And that then leads into chapter 13 with more practical instructions about living the Christian life in the real world. And he moves from chapter 13 into this section that we've been in for several weeks, chapter 14, verse 1 to 15, 13. And what we come to today is the climax of that section. And what's interesting is the passage we'll look at today also serves as a kind of final word of instruction in the book of Romans. So it is, you could see it most certainly as the climax to this section But it is also the final word of instruction before Paul gets into all this itinerary stuff and the greeting stuff at the end of chapter 15 and into chapter 16. This is the last message, the last bit of theological discourse that Paul gives in this most famous letter that he has written. So we could understand this passage today to be climactic of the book of Romans as a whole. So let's take up and read. If you would go ahead and stand with me. We're going to read Romans chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. Chapter 15, 1 to 13. Our text for today is verses 7 to 13. We covered 1 to 6 last week, but I want to give you the context, and we'll start, as we've done for a while now, at the beginning of the chapter. So this is God's word. It is holy and it profits his people. As we take it in today, God God changes us by his word. So I pray that you came here this morning desiring to be changed and more than that, expecting to be changed. As we sit under God's word, as we absorb his word, as we meditate upon it, our hearts are instructed. We're cut to the heart and God conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. Maybe you're not a Christian here this morning. God uses his word as the means of salvation. So open your, open your ears to the Lord. Ask that he would change you. Ask that he would show you your sin and your need for a savior. This is God's word. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. I'm gonna read that verse again because the way it's broken up, uh, the ESV editors take that verse with what precedes, but it's, I think, rightly to be taken with what follows. So I'm gonna read that verse again more quickly with what follows. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you, That Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. And in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. And then verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to the Lord. Let's thank him for time together. Let's thank him for his word. And let's ask that he would use his word to transform us, to give us insight into who he is and what his purposes are in Jesus Christ. Father, we come humbly before you and yet boldly before you at your throne of grace to find the mercy, the grace, the help that we need in our time of need, which is always, Father, we are always in need. So we come before you this Sunday before Christmas, and we just ask that all of our hearts collectively would adore the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see him for who he is, that we would see the great plan of history that is centered on him, and Lord, that we would see practically the effects the purposes, the results of his coming in the lives of real people like us, living in a real time, part of a real church, doing real life. Father, that we would see the, the import, the impact of the coming of Christ into the world. Not something to merely be considered in the mind or nostalgically sung in songs, but Lord, something to be lived. And we pray that we would live Christmas, that we would live Christ. God, we pray that you would help this sermon this morning to do that, to, to, to create, to mold, to shape us, uh, to live Christmas, to live the, the truth of Christ's coming practically. And Lord, particularly as we think about this passage we're in, that it would impact how we treat one another in this church. Uh, Lord, that our love for each other would grow, our desire to serve one another would grow and, and our willingness to accept one another in the face of differences and to see that we are built up in your word, that we're built up in your gospel. Father, that we would live self-denying lives, not selfish lives, and that the world would look upon us here at Four Corners and they would see the life of Christ. They would see the truth of the gospel. They would see uh, the, the significance, the relevance of the Christian message. Father, I pray for anyone who is here today who is not a Christian. Lord, Sunday before Christmas, families in town, uh, undoubtedly some this morning do not know you. They're here, going through the motions, but they know noth nothing of your grace. Their hearts have not been changed. Uh, they have not been born again. They do not worship Jesus as Lord, they do not truly believe in their hearts that you raised him from the dead. They have not trusted that through Jesus' blood their sins are forgiven. They have no hope in the life to come. No hope in the coming of Jesus again to receive us unto himself. Father, I pray for those souls among us this morning. I pray that they would see the glory of Christ this morning from his word and that they would turn to him, submit to him, bow the knee to him as Lord and King. And that they would trust him as the promised redeemer, the only rescuer, the ark in which we must go to be saved from the flood of your just wrath against sin. I pray for those individuals, Lord. And I pray for all of us that we would be lifted up and praised to you this morning by means of your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in this passage, Paul is calling his readers to accept one another because they've been accepted by Christ. That's the, that's the logic at the very beginning. Accept one another as you have been accepted by Christ. Because you have been accepted by Christ. In light of the fact that you have been accepted by Christ. Jew and Gentile together in Christ. The weak in faith and the strong in faith together 
those whose consciences will not allow them to eat freely, and those who have fully embraced their freedom in Christ together. Those who still think they need to observe Old Testament ceremonial laws, and those who don't, together. Those with different opinions and views on inessential matters, together. Unity, harmony, peace in Christ. That's what this passage is about. That's what chapter 14, verse 1 to 15 verse 13 is about, and that's what this climactic passage is telling us, this unity in Christ, this accepting one another as those who have been accepted by him. And Paul lays it out for us in three parts, and these are going to be our three points for this morning. He lays this out, accepted by Christ, accepting one another. He lays this out in three parts, and so here they are, one Christian people, verses seven to nine, the beginning of nine, One collective praise, latter part of 9 to 12, and then one central prayer. One Christian people, one collective praise, and one central prayer. So let's look at these. We're going to begin with one Christian people. And for that, look with me at verses 7 to 9a. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you For the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So, what is Paul doing here in this passage? Well, he is uniting. That's the big idea. Paul is uniting his readers. Some of his readers are Jews. And some are Gentiles. Some are having trouble moving beyond in this particular historical context. Some are having trouble moving beyond those Old Testament observances, those Old Testament Jewish observances, and some are not. And Paul wants to remind them of their unity, of their oneness. But where is this unity found? You know that There's a lot of talk about unity in our world, and we just think, well, that's a good word. Inclusion and unity and acceptance and all of that. Those are just kind of good words that in our culture are very PC. They're thrown around. What kind of unity are we talking about? Unity for unity's sake? Unity irrespective of truth? No. We are talking about unity in something, or rather, unity in someone. Unity in Christ. This unity is found in Christ alone. How are these people united? They are united as a people who have been welcomed or accepted by Christ. That is the basis for their unity. They have a big label on their foreheads. All of them, a label on their foreheads and a label on all of our foreheads that says this, accepted by Christ Another way that's put in the New Testament is in Christ Jesus. They are one Christian people. The therefore at the beginning of verse 7 tells us that Paul has reached his conclusion. As I said before, the conclusion of all that he has said in this section. And here it is. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you For the glory of God. That's what it is. That's the big conclusion. That's the big imperative. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. It pulls together everything Paul has said in this section. And what's interesting here, (coughs) excuse me, is the word welcome brings us back to the very beginning of this section. Go back to verse chapter 14, verse 1, as all of this began. He says, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. And so Paul is bringing the reader back to the very beginning and he's bracketing all that he's said so far and he's saying this is the main idea. Welcome one another, receive one another, accept one another in Christ. And those who have been accepted by Christ, Christians lovingly accept one another 
And do not allow, as we look out upon these others who have been accepted by Christ, we are relating to one another as those accepted by Christ, we do not allow inessentials, matters of indifference, matters not clearly taught in Scripture, to divide us. Paul is telling these readers not to allow these inessentials to divide them. We welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Why? Paul gives a purpose here. Why is it that we welcome one another or accept one another just as Christ has us? The answer is for the glory of God. That's where he ends in verse 7, for the glory of God. Let me say this to us as we think about what, is, what are the important features of the Christian life? You know, I said this a while ago uh, as we were talking in our gospel community group about loving our enemies. And it came up in our group. We were thinking about it, and then the comment was made several times. You know, this is not something on the deep sheet. I asked the question, how, how often have you really thought about this as being part of the Christian life? And it was brought up, you know, not that often. And that's the thing. There, there's so many essentials to the Christian life that we just lose sight of. They become ultra familiar, and then they just begin to drift away. We take them for granted, and we don't actually live them out. Here, I think we find another one of those, and that is that we accept one another for the glory of God. Think about this. God is made much of. Christ is exalted. And Christmas is celebrated when we lovingly embrace one another despite our differences. You know, we can make everything a, a, a first order issue. We could turn every single issue, every single opinion, every single view and difference into a first order issue. And Christians have done that throughout history and divided. And you can go in any point in history. You can look at the church fathers. You can look at medieval Christianity. You can look at Reformation Christianity. You can look at all the fights between the Puritans. I mean, we read these guys, we see them as one whole bunch, but they disagreed on all sorts of things. I think about Luther and Zwingli and their disagreements over the Lord's Supper and, and how they debated. And <clears throat> Luther left the end of that debate saying, I can consider you a friend, but I don't know that I can consider you a brother in Christ. This is the sort of thing. These are, many of these people are our heroes in the faith, but what we see is that the truths of Romans 14 and 15 seem to not settle as deeply and as strongly as they need to among Christian people. And that's the reason why Paul spends so much time dealing with this in this letter. It's not just justification by faith that he talks about. It's not just the hope that we have in Christ as those who've died with Christ and been raised with Christ. It's not just uh, the, the life in the spirit that we now have. It also involves this, this unity Christ is exalted. God is glorified when we lovingly embrace one another in the face of <clears throat> our differences. It's kind of like children obeying their parents. It's really easy for kids to obey their parents when their parents tell them something they already want to do. Uh, they just go on about it. It's fine. But when the parent tells the child to do something that they adamantly do not want to do. That's when obedience is tested. It's easy to embrace one another and love one another and be warm and friendly to one another when we agree on everything. The challenge comes when we don't. That's when we see real unity. That's when we see real harmony. That's when we see real Christian love. Then, in verses 8 to 9, Paul goes on to explain what it means that Christ has welcomed them. So he's told them, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And now he wants to go on and explain what it means that Christ has welcomed them. So he describes how it is that Christ has accepted both Jews and Gentiles. Both Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, And remember that the disagreements that, that's going on in the background to Romans 14 and 15 is primarily a Jewish-Gentile disagreement. That's not to say that the weak are only the Jews and the strong are only the Gentiles. Uh, it, it would have been mixed a little bit, but the, the dividing line really does seem to go along the line of Jew and Gentile. So that's the reason Paul, at this, at this climactic point, 
brings together Jew and Gentile. So how is it that Christ has accepted both? Well, why did Christ come into the world? We celebrate at Christmas the fact that Christ came into the world. The Word, from the beginning, He was with God, He was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We celebrate the coming of the second person of the Trinity, of the the God-man, of of the, the Christ. We celebrate him coming into the world. So why did Christ come into the world? Well, Paul tells us here in this passage, to be a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness. That's the big answer to why Christ came. He came to the Jews to demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promises. Christ came to the Jews. He came to the Jews as the Jewish Messiah. He came to the Jew first. Romans 1.16, remember? The gospel goes forth. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. He came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 15, 24. And remember his ministry. You read through the Gospels. How many Gentiles is Jesus engaging with? It's not many. It's some. But Jesus' ministry is to Israel when he first comes. He comes as the Jewish Messiah who comes to his people to seek the lost sheep of the house of Israel. We forget the Jewishness of Christmas. Let me say that again. We forget the Jewishness of Christmas. We must root Christmas historically. And when we do that, Christmas becomes so much larger. It becomes so much more beautiful. It becomes so much more powerful to us because we see in Christmas the plan of the ages. We see the great storyline of the Bible. We see why it is that God created the universe and why he saved us through Jesus Matthew 15, 24 tells us that Christ came to Israel first. But why? Why did he come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel? Why did he come as the Jewish Messiah to show God's faithfulness? The answer involves both Jews and Gentiles. Notice Paul's logic here. He says that Christ came on behalf of God's faithfulness to the Jewish people. But then a further reason is given, or a further two-part reason is given. Why is it that Christ did that? Well, the answer involves both Jews and Gentiles. Reason one. Look at the logic here. Reason one, verse eight. In order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So when Christ came on the scene, it was as though you had these these promises lying out there over on the side, not fulfilled yet, and they're just kind of lying there. God has made these promises to the patriarchs. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and there they are, but they haven't been fulfilled. Christ's coming is cataclysmic, and then it, it is as though God takes a massive stamp And he stamps those promises as fulfilled. He stamps those promises as yes. He stamps those promises as true and confirmed. We see this in the birth narratives at the beginning of Matthew and Luke. We see this in Luke, for example. When Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, remember he's he's silenced because when he's in the temple, the angel tells him he's going to have a son who's going to be the forerunner of the Christ. Uh, He he questions the angel. How am I going to know this is, how do I know this is going to happen? He, his heart is filled with doubt. And so the angel, as I t- explained to our children uh, the other day, God gave Zechariah a spanking. And he, he disciplined him. And the way he disciplined him was he took away his speech until John was born. But when John the Baptist is born, the Holy Spirit opens Zechariah's mouth, not to just go, whew, I'm glad I could talk now. But the Holy Spirit opened Zechariah's mouth to release this amazing praise and prophecy to the Lord. And this is what Zechariah says, chapter 1, verses 68 to 79 in Luke. Blessed, notice here about the Jews, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Israel. 
historic Israel is in view there. And has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then he goes on to say this. To remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. God doesn't make oaths lightly. And God never lies. He never lies. It is blasphemously unthinkable that God would ever say he's going to do something and not do it. We are frail. We forget. We go back on our word. We are unfaithful often. Not the Lord. He never lies. And he promised these things to Abraham. And what we're being told here by Paul is that Christ came into the world in order to confirm those promises that he gave to Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob and so on. So that's reason number one. Reason number two, we find verse nine, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So the coming of Christ to the Jewish people extended beyond the Jewish people. Why did Christ come as a servant? Humbly as a baby, meek and lowly in a manger, even to the point of death on a cross? Answer, to fulfill his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to shower the undeserving, uncovenanted Gentiles with his mercy. You see, neither the Jews nor the Gentiles deserved anything from God. That's why it's all mercy. But God had made promises to the Jewish people. He had made promises to the Jews through the patriarchs. And so Christ came to confirm those promises. But he had made no promises to the Gentile people. He brought his mercy to them through Christ. And all of this to the Jew and to the Gentile can be traced back to one early biblical verse. And you remember it from Genesis 12. Genesis 12 verse 3, God promises Abraham in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's the amazing thing. The, the coming of Christ to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and the coming of Christ in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy are rolled up into one and become one in the same in light of God's promise to Abraham. Because God's promise to Abraham involves the blessing of all the families on the globe through his descendants. So I hope you see this. At the heart of Christmas is one united people pulled together from very different backgrounds. It should not surprise us at all how many different backgrounds and propensities and inclinations and worldviews, little, little W worldviews, that we come from. We, we inhabit different spaces throughout our lives and we just come together into a local church. The same was true of the Jews and Gentiles, imagine a Jew living in Palestine and a Gentile living in the city of Corinth. What in the world did those two have in common? In Christ, everything. How much less our little differences. One united people pulled together from very different, different backgrounds and in Paul's day being held together by one great truth. We are, we are a people who are being held together. Held together by one great truth. We are all accepted by Christ. We are one Christian people. Isn't it interesting that that's how Paul ends Romans, as it were? That's how he ends the instruction? So when you think of Romans in the future, you think justification by faith. That's good. You think uh, life in the Spirit. That's good. I also want you to think unity and harmony in Christ among brothers and sisters. So that's the first part of Paul's argument here as he unfolds this acceptance by Christ and accepting of one another. The second is one collective praise. So we've seen one Christian people, Jew and Gentile united as one in Christ, accepted by Christ, and now we see one collective praise. So look with me at verses 9 to 12. I'm going to pick up in the middle of the verse. As it is written, 
Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. What Paul has just said about unity in Christ, he now roots in the Old Testament scriptures. He goes back and he gives this this machine gun quote, one after another, this string of quotations from the Old Testament. And that tells us that this was always God's plan. This unity of one people, one Christian people, Jew and Gentile, despite the differences, despite the diversity, despite the diverse backgrounds, one people, this was always God's plan. But the purpose for that one people is one praise, one collective voice of praise to God. Remember back in verse 6, what Paul said there, verse 6, that together, You may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. One single voice. And here's the problem. This is what Paul is saying. Paul's desire is that there be one voice. God's desire for us is that there be one voice glorifying God. And here's the problem. When we allow differences between us, inessential differences, differences that are not clear clearly taught issues and views that are not clearly taught in God's word, that are not a matter of obedience to clear commands of scripture. We allow the the differences among us to divide us. What is lost? What do we subtract from this one voice of praise to God? God's glory is ultimately what this is all about. So consider this, the prophecies of Christ's coming that we read here, these Old Testament prophecies, Verses, these prophetic verses, the prophecies of Christ's coming that we talk about, especially at Christmas, right? We read these verses, and especially verse 12, and these are the sorts of things we read during Christmas time. These prophecies of Christ's coming. These prophecies include, now listen to this carefully, these prophecies include the bringing together of one people in Christ for God's praise. Let me say that again. These prophecies don't just sort of lose themselves in Christ's coming and then we marvel at it. These prophecies are bent towards, are leaning in towards this union of one people for the praise of God's name. That means our unity has to do with the glory of Christ. It means that our unity has to do with the gospel. Let me just say this to us. Christmas should bring brothers and sisters in Christ together. Not because we feel really good. uh, Not because we have, uh, you know, so it's just a a cheerful season and just makes us kind of feel happy. And so we just are nicer to each other. That's not what I'm talking about. The truths of Christmas, the kinds of things that Paul is saying here should bring brothers and sisters in Christ together. So let me say this to you. Maybe you're marching along this Christmas. You're doing your Advent devotional. You're, you're doing family worship with your kids. You're coming, <clears throat> you're coming to the services and, and maybe you're, you're even helping your neighbor and doing some things out there for people in need and all, all of these things that are going on that we associate with Christmas time. But all the while, you got this bitterness and grudge towards your brother or sister in Christ. Or all the while, you have this, this rupture in a relationship with a brother and sister in Christ. You need to see that Christmas is relevant to that. That the coming of Christ, the purpose of his coming, the prophecies about his coming are relevant to that bitterness and anger and resentment or whatever else you have in your heart towards your fellow believer. So maybe put the book down. Get on your face before God and talk to your brother or sister in Christ. Give them a call. Worship Christ rightly this Christmas. Who do you need to reconcile with in the body of Christ this 
Christmas. Bouncing off of his last point about Gentiles glorifying God for his mercy, Paul now lists examples of that from the Old Testament. He gives four verses, four verses from the Old Testament. So I'm just going to go through these quickly. David in Psalm 1849, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. Moses in Deuteronomy 32, 43, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. David again in Psalm 117, 1, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And then we hear, finally, climactically from the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah eleven ten, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. So what can we observe about this list of Old Testament quotations and prophecies? The importance of them lies in their uh, togetherness. They, they are meant to be taken as, as one thing. We're meant to read through them and to, to feel the impact of them collectively. And so what observations can we make about this little package deal? Paul is going back to the Old Testament to reinforce this point about accepting one another as those accepted by Christ, to reinforce this unity in Christ according to God's purpose. He's going back to the Old Testament. What are some observations we can make about this package deal? Well, first, Gentile inclusion is the main idea. That's the main thing that Paul is focused on here. The word Gentiles is repeated in every verse. God pulls together all peoples to make one people of praise. A second observation is that the Jewish people are at the center. So if the Gentiles, uh, that's the the main idea, that's that's the, the theme that's running throughout, that's what's common to every single one of these quotations, at the center of all that are the Jewish people. We see that in Deuteronomy 32, 43. That quotation there, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. That's a reference to the Jews. And this reminds us that the Gentiles are grafted in. Those who were not a people are now a people. Remember as Paul describes that in Romans 11, that you had the Jewish people and some of the branches were broken off. And then Gentile branches were grafted in. Unnatural branches were grafted in. We are unnatural branches. If we're Gentiles, non-Jews, non-Hebrews, non-physical descendants, ethnic descendants of Abraham, we are grafted in branches. We are rejoicing, listen, with his people. We've been grafted in to be a part of his people. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Third, the Jewish Messiah is the one who pulls all of these people together. So we see Christ through the mouth of David in Psalm 1849. I will praise you among the Gentiles. This is the Christ praising the Father. We get a similar thing in uh, Psalm 22. At the end of Psalm 22, as, as Christ is presented as as praising the Father in the midst of the congregation of the peoples. I will praise you among the Gentiles. And then Isaiah's prophecy at the very end, the root or better shoot, the shoot, the offshoot of Jesse will come. The descendant of David, Jesse's son, he has arisen to rule over the Gentiles. And this is interesting because the the verb that is used here is... Uh, I think indicative of Jesus' resurrection. So when we read of the, the root of Jesse or the shoot of Jesse, the one who is from David, he's arising to rule the Gentiles. He's being raised. He's, there's a reference here to the resurrection of Christ from the dead. He arises from the dead to rule over all peoples of every tribe, tongue, and nation. And what kind of rule is this? It is a rule of mercy. It is a rule of praise. Going back to verse nine, why are we gathered this morning? Maybe you're here because uh, you're, uh, I, I heard a, a phrase recently um, that I didn't know. Uh, actually, Chris, Chris said it one time and I thought, I've never heard that before. 
Um, uh, creasters. Have you ever heard of that one? <laughs> so maybe you're a creaster. Maybe you just frequent church when it's Christmas or Easter. Therefore, a creaster. Well, it's not my desire to label you this morning, but I, I do want to challenge you specifically and ask you, why in the world are you here? Why in the world are you here? Why are we gathered here this morning? Why do we sing? Why do we celebrate Advent? And the reason is because we are praising God for his mercy. If you have no appreciation for God's mercy to you in Christ this morning, then I don't know what you're doing here. We praise God for his mercy. That's why it is that we've come together to worship. And I'll tell you why you're here this morning if you're not doing that, because of God's goodness to you, because of God's providence in your life. He's brought you here so that you would become one of those people. Don't waste this time. You may never find yourself in another gathering like this again. Today is the day of salvation. Turn to Christ now if you are a priester. Turn to Christ now. Trust in him and his mercy so that the next time you come to church, you'll be praising God for his mercy and not just sitting, waiting for it to end so that you can go have lunch but praising God for his mercy. And by the way, let me just say this. When we are swept up in that, when we are swept up in praising God for his mercy, the little non-essentials will not divide us. That's the fundamental problem is idleness. Idleness, spiritual idleness. People who are arguing and bickering and quarreling and, and dividing and focused on differences are spiritually idle. They're not doing what they're supposed to be doing, and so they're wrapped up in doing what they're not supposed to be doing. What should we be doing? We should be absolutely consumed with praising God for his mercy. That's why we were saved. That's why Christ came. That's why Jews and Gentiles have come together as one people that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So finally, we come to one central prayer. We've seen one Christian people, one collective praise, and then finally this morning, one central prayer. Look at verse 13 with me. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Paul ended verse 12 with Isaiah's prophetic words, in him will the Gentiles hope. That word, Paul does this frequently, a word will sort of uh, kind of catapult him into a, a, another little section about that word. He, he said, Paul is an excited writer. He, he's, he's a worshipful, excited writer. He's just bubbling over with praise towards God and excitement about the truth of the gospel. By the way, what a testimony to the truth of the gospel that this former Jewish Pharisee is now so sold out to tell people about Christ, to get beaten for Christ, to get beheaded for Christ. Do you, do you feel his passion? Do you hear his passion? And from that, do you see the reality? He saw Christ. When he tells you he saw Christ, he's not lying. He saw Christ. And you feel the same from Peter and from John when he says, we've seen him, we've touched him, we've held him, we've beheld him. He lives. That's Paul's spirit. That is the, the overall tone of all that he writes. And so he goes from this idea of hope and it just springboards him into what we find here in verse 13. And it leads him here into a very special prayer. And this verse has become one of my favorite verses in the Bible. One of my favorite verses. One commentator describes it this way. Verse 13. What Paul sets out here in 1513 is in fact the essence of all that he proclaimed in his mission to pagan Gentiles. Of all that he wrote to the believers in Jesus at Rome. 
and of all that by being canonized in our New Testament is being spoken to Christians today. This prayer gets at the center of the Christian life. This prayer gets at the essence of Christianity. It tells us what we should strive for in our own Christian lives, what we should pray for and work towards in the lives of others. It tells elders what to pray for the congregation, and it tells parents what to pray for for our children. Let me ask you a question. You praying for your children to be successful? Okay. You praying for your children to make good money, get a good education, be strong, fit, eat well, whatever. You're praying about all these things. How about praying this for your children? How about praying that this, verse 13, would take such deep root in the hearts of our children? As we've seen, this comes out of a grand view of history, this prayer. God's plan to unite one diverse people in Christ. God's plan to love and accept a people who will then love and accept one another. So as we pray this prayer, we need to pray it in context. We need to consider its import and its relevance in context. United living, united praise, and now united hope. Our unity in Christ is a unity in hope. That's what defines us as people. And this hope comes only from God, the God of hope, Paul says, the God who gives hope. He's the one who grants it. Only he can give it, and only he can cause it to abound by the Holy Spirit, as we see at the end of the verse. It is a hope born out of unity and a hope that fosters unity. Let me say that again. This hope in Christ is a hope that is born out of unity and that fosters unity. And here's what I want to just put before you. There's a relationship here between your hope in Christ and the way you relate to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and what I'm saying is that if, if one of those is broken, the other one's broken too. They're connected. They're, they're sealed together. So you might be marching along in your dogmatic Christian life in your nitpicky, critical Christian life, in your divisive Christian life, with your head full of all kinds of truths about the Lord, and you think, here you go, filled with hope, filled with trust in the biblical Christ, ignoring and trampling and not loving your brother and sister in Christ. And what I'm here to tell you is your hope's broken. You're deceived. You think your hope is strong. You think your hope in Christ is secure. But hope that is not born out of this unity and that does not foster this unity is not real Christian hope. It's broken. So dismantle it. Let God's word dismantle it and then rebuild it up, connected, sealed together rightly. Here Paul seems to use faith and hope synonymously, uses them as synonyms. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. May God grant you joy and peace as you believe. So hope here and belief seem to be tied very closely together and there's distinctions obviously, but they seem to be used synonymously here. You know, we love these words, these two words, joy and peace. We use them a lot. We like them. Very familiar, very common. But we try to find these things in all the wrong places, don't we? Joy and peace. We're all looking for that. Uh, the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle said that uh, it is in our nature as human beings to pursue our own happiness. Well, that's absolutely right. Uh, we, we do. That's just natural. It's, it's what we do. And that's, of course, perverted in the extreme because of sin. But we look for joy and peace in all the wrong places. The brokenness of our sinful hearts. We think, we look out there into the future. Just think about all the dreams in your head. All the things rattling around in your head that get the dopamine flowing in your brain. All those things uh, that are going on in your mind. Those thoughts that trigger for you happy feelings. What are you thinking? What are you thinking about? What are you hoping in? What are you expecting? What are you looking forward to? What are you anticipating? 
What do you think is going to bring you joy and peace? We look for these things in all the wrong places. What happens? Well, we come up empty. And then we hit the reset button and we try to find it in a different place. Or we foolishly just keep trying to find it in that same thing. Coming up empty, coming up empty, coming up empty until we come up dead. Till the end. That's, that's, that's the sadness and darkness of human life. There's only one path to joy and peace. And it is the path of belief in Jesus Christ. All joy and peace in believing. It is the path of trusting in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. The one who came into the world to save sinners. The one who died in our place to rescue us from God's judgment on sin. The one who rose again to rule over both Jew and Gentile forever. Believing in him is the only path to joy and peace. So here you go. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Maybe, you know, back to the Christian thing. Maybe you've just come in this morning. Let me ask you this. Are you just gonna walk out this morning and just keep trying to find joy and peace in all the wrong places, coming up short? You, you got a track record. Just turn around and look back. Just turn around and consider all your futile efforts to try to bring yourself joy and peace with the things of this world. Failure, failure, failure. Why project that into the future? Turn to Christ. Trust Christ and have all joy abounding more and more as we grow in Christ. All joy and peace in believing. Believing in Christ is the only path to joy and peace. And that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's what Christians are doing. Everyone is celebrating something called Christmas and it looks different for everybody. But that's what Christians are doing. This Christ, this one hope that is found in him, and this one joy and peace that come only as we daily put our trust in him. You know, it always amazes me when I hear these famous people sing Christmas songs. And for whatever reason, you know, just from things I've heard, different uh, things I've heard them say, I don't think that the person's a Christian. And they're singing these songs. And some of them sound amazing. Sound amazing. And they're my favorite versions. And they're singing these words. And it's just like bouncing off of a cold, dead heart. A stone cold, dead heart. No joy, no peace. They sound so joyful and so peaceful with their melodic voices that God gave them for his glory. And they use to blaspheme him and reject him. And serve self. And they're singing these wonderful songs and just bouncing off of a cold, dead heart. I pray that that will not be the case for you this Christmas. So this Christmas, my prayer for all of us is this. May the God of hope fill us all with joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. And as we abound in hope, that we may abound in unity and love for one another. That we would welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Why? For the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your revelation to us. We thank you for Christmas. We thank you for the truths of Christmas. We recognize, Lord, that Christmas has largely been hijacked by the culture. and There's just so much that is obscuring the beauty and glory. And yet the beauty and glory is so glorious that it just shines through all of that. Lord, we thank you for the first Christmas. And we thank you for Advent each year as we as Christians get to think about these things anew. But beyond that, Lord, we thank you that every day is Christmas for us. Every day we live in light of this great hope that, that came through this great Christ who came to earth to save sinners like us. We thank you, Father. Would these truths unite us together? Father, would you, would you grow our unity and our harmony and our love for one another? Would we be absolutely 
committed to the truths of your word, word, would we stand courageously and fight for the truths of your word as many around us reject and, and fall away from the authority of scripture, the truth of the gospel, the basic ethical structure of the Christian life, many churches caving and caving and caving. Lord, would we not do that? Would we be courageous and stand firm on your truth alone while also not being divided over inessential matters, differences of opinion, and so forth? God, would you grant us the grace to do this in unity and hope, joy and peace by the Holy Spirit, for the glory of your name. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.